0: Hey, this is The Brains Podcast. I'm Julian Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Cortland Allen. And today we're here with Tim Urban and Jason Silva. Jason is the host of National Geographic's Brain Games TV show. And on his popular YouTube channel, he vlogs about the most fascinating aspects of human nature and society. Tim Urban is quite possibly the most popular blogger in the world, and he has been for years. His website, Wait But Why, is home to millions of readers and half a million subscribers. He's the man who went inside Elon Musk's machine to chronicle the stories of how Elon built SpaceX, Tesla, and Neuralink. People love Jason for his charisma. You can't stop watching his videos once you start. And they love Tim for his ability to break down the big, meaty topics of our day into fun narratives that show us how the world really works. What do Jason and Tim have in common? They're among the best storytellers the internet has ever seen. And storytelling, as we'll discuss, is the critical ingredient not enough people are talking about. So
1: what kicked this episode off is Cortland and I realizing that storytelling, which is rarely discussed, is responsible for driving a lot of people to the top of their fields. Like if you look at the presidential debates, if you take Trump versus Clinton, Trump was the storyteller. Clinton, meanwhile, was focused on analysis and that wasn't enough. Or if you look at comedy, at the top is Dave Chappelle and he's basically transitioned to a full-time storyteller. You know, he still has funny one-liners and quips thrown in, but he's first and foremost telling you stories now. Hmm. And that was deliberate, because he's trying to help his points better resonate.
0: Yeah, I was talking to this guy on Andy Hackers actually, last year. His name is Thomas Pueyo, and he's written a lot about storytelling. And kind of his theory is that stories are the best way for us to learn and teach each other. And so if you imagine being an ancient human who's part of this tribe, and someone wants to tell everybody about how they almost got eaten by a lion they're not going to gather you around the fire and then show you like a three bullet point PowerPoint presentation because that wouldn't make any sense. Like you wouldn't remember that. Right. They're going to tell you a story. They're going to say, I was down by the watering hole last week and I, I locked eyes with this lion and he started chasing me and I was running for my life. You know, I thought I was going to die. And then I saw a tree and I scrambled up it as fast as I could and this lion couldn't follow. So eventually he just gave up and went away and I was, I was spared. You know, I'm here to tell the story today. If you hear that story, you're going to remember like the watering hole is dangerous and like climb a tree if you see a lion. And I think the fact that it's so memorable and it's so emotional is why the best people at the top of their field, like this, these politicians and cult leaders and comedians
2: are all really good storytellers. Well, do you think that that has something that says something innate about how we understand reality? I mean, there's been like, certainly there's other ways we map the world. I mean, mathematics is another way we explain reality, but, Mm -hmm. but certainly it feels like like storytelling is, is, is innate to who we are. Like we are sort of narratively constructed. And it starts with like identity, which is an autobiographical story that we tell ourselves about ourselves that we have to sustain. And then like culture is sort of an imagined story that we share, right? Because a dream you dream alone is just a dream, but a dream you dream together is reality. Yaval Harari talked about that in Sapiens, right? Like yeah. the, the sort of threaded, collective consensus narrative and and then of course today the problem is that there's so many competing stories and competing narratives that it's fracturing the narratives that we need to sustain us right and so that's also the problem we're having
3: yeah you're it's like um before there were a lot of wars physical wars with weapons yeah so and there were also wars of stories today it's like all about wars of stories i mean there are worse and, right. and so and so if you're if you're um a story uh what what do you want you want uh if you want to you know, a story that wants to survive right or uh, you, you you don't only want to have people evangelizing you, you and your the, the the story um but also you want to silence other stories because that's the best way that's the weapon right is so censorship is, is yeah pressure cultural censorship all of that is is uh, yeah, it's one story because,
2: because, yeah, I think on some level, other stories become existential threats to our story, and and and, and you know, you, you could argue that after what might seem a more reflexive story or impulse to eat or mate then comes the story of meaning, right? The story of self-awareness and collective awareness and, and collective narrative and group narrative and tribalism and, and, and I've always been persuaded by the idea that, that those stories that we use to craft and sustain meaning actually sustain us against spiraling into madness. So, Ernest Becker, Ernest Becker wrote the book The Denial of Death in 1974. He won the Pulitzer Prize and that book basically said that the the worm at the core of what you might call the human condition the source of our existential malaise is our unique awareness of mortality and that sort of just imbues the world with a kind of nihilism like what's for anything you know if we're just mortal beings right at the end of the day we just die and so what becker says is that from there the three solutions to the problem of death were basically three stories that sustain us meaningfully. He, he even calls human character a vital lie. Right? <laughs> like your sense of self is a vital lie. And that without it, the only response to the human condition is full and open psychosis. You know, he says the schizophrenic is suffering from the truth. And he maps how the religious solution, the romantic solution, and the creative solution to the problem of death, were these three sort of sustaining narratives, existentially sustaining narratives that we can't live without. Whether it's we're going to live forever with God after we die, or whether when we fall in love it's the Hollywood story of romance and we're sustained by the love story of you and I, or creativity, right? Let's build great cities, let's invade great things, let's go explore the world, make sense of things, you know, but that without those three impulses, like, it's the collapse of the self. Does that make sense?
0: Totally. And I think you said something there about how stories can compete with each other, how each of us probably believes stories that are in conflict with other stories that threaten the truth of our own narratives. And it reminds me of this blog post that Tim wrote. Tim, I think it was on, it's like your latest blog post on Wait But Why, and it's called the Biden-Trump debate. And it was just kind of this humorous, fictional take on the debate, like an alternate debate that didn't really happen. But people in the comments were pissed. Like you could tell that the fact that you wrote that post threatened the story that they told themselves about you and what your beliefs are. I mean, they were literally threatening to unsubscribe from your blog and stop being your fans because you had threatened the stories they like to tell themselves.
1: Yeah, my favorite was like, we see what side you're on, Tim. The Democrat in you came out. There's no more hiding.
3: <laughs> the funny thing, actually, is that I, I, uh, I kind of poked fun at both sides and and kind of like didn't put too much personal opinion out there, but... Everyone whose identity is stitched to a political story right now um, felt I was on the wrong side. So that, that I, I had very angry Trump voters, and I had <laughs> um, and I had very angry uh, uh, leftists. Um, you know, and because in, if the if if one partisan story is stitched to your identity, someone who is making fun of both sides. Um, that that's that's incorrect. That's equally it's as, as, as incorrect as as anything. Um, there's there's two sets of research that I think like go together. One is that we have a hard time um, distinguishing our our um, our identity from the ideas we believe. Right. So so I think some people are really good at it. Uh, you know, Paul Graham wrote a post called um, uh, "Keep Your
0: Identity Small."
3: Yes, keep your identity small. One of my favorites. I, it, yeah, it, it's it's such a great point because uh, it just liberates you. Now you suddenly can relax. You have nothing to cling on to. You can uh, you can just explore and change your mind. And it's this great thing. And it's so it's actually really stressful um, having beliefs that are said these beliefs are um, are part of me, and so I can't change my mind. A and B. When someone disagrees, I'm that is a hostile threat. So that's the first. That's like the first research is that we identify with beliefs, but then it goes deeper because. There's also a lot of research specifically about parts of the brain that light up when we think about our identity. Um, and our and, and it's the same parts that are the fight or fight or flight parts. In in other words, like our identity, we 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 mix up with our body, with our physical well-being. So you put those together you say that you know our beliefs when someone challenges them it feels like someone running at us with a spear uh, which by the way if, if it's it's and if you you know think about what is a virus viruses aren't alive they're not um they don't have a cal- you're not calculating what they do they're 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 this kind of this, this this weird strand of this particular you know kind of dna that happens to make the host want to preserve it or or, or makes the host um it, it makes the host spread it or whatever through sneezing or whatever so it kind of takes over your behavior and helps and makes you help it now if you think about a story it's not alive of course so it's when i anthropomorphize and say it wants something it doesn't but the virus doesn't want something either so when a story gets in you what it happens is there's lots of stories but the stories that happen to be good at stitching to people's identities and happen to be the kind, you know, the, the the stories with the gods were a jealous guy. There couldn't be only one God. Okay, so now anyone who's, who says that otherwise, they must be killed. I mean, that's a story that is going to be like a virus that is going to be very good at spreading. And it's going to drive no you doubt. behavior. It, it gets in your head yeah. and it drives your behavior. I
2: mean, for sure. And I mean, it's like that famous quote that says, uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. And, uh, and if you guys ever read this, this a marvelous essay by James Glick, but the, the, the essay was called What is a Meme? And he was talking about, of course, Dawkins' idea of the meme as like the new replicator. We went from replicating genes to replicating memes. And so how ideas, ideas they leap from brain to brain. Ideas have infectivity and spreading power. And even though ideas are not made of nucleic acid, they have achieved more evolutionary change and at a rate that leaves the old gene panting far behind. And so like the film Inception, right, like an idea Can be highly resilient, highly contagious, and it can come to it can create you know help you grow and evolve, or it can it can destroy you.
0: Yeah.
1: One of the best real world examples here is political debates. When I'm watching the Republican debates, the way the Republicans speak is so different than the Democrats. The Republicans are using stories. They're coalescing the tribe using narrative. Here's what's wrong. Here's where we're going to go. Here's why it's a problem for you, but not as facts, but rather as a hero versus the villain. And then when I listen to the Democrats speak, they're just responding with factoids. And and that that puts you at a structural disadvantage uh, because it doesn't coalesce the tribe and create the fervor that the Republican storytellers uh, are
3: able to pull off. So I agree with you there, but I would say that I would say the Democrats are doing two things wrong. One is I agree with you that the the Democrats who I, I, I connect with, um, they are not telling enough of a story. And then there's a whole other slew of Democrats that they are telling a story. And I don't think it's a good story. And I think it's a kind of a cult of its own, mm-hmm. the, far, the kind of what you mm-hmm. call the far left. I, I yeah. think of it as a two dimensional thing. So I, I don't think of it as the far left because if you only have one dimension, then far left has to mean bad, you know, or bad has to mean, but actually far left when it's open to new ideas, when it's just being the the kind of the crazy experimental innovative far left. Great, we need them, we want them here. Just like I want the hardcore conservatives here. on this horizontal plane. Now, when we think about it in two dimensions, when we, I think of it is at the top, you have people that are throwing their ideas out there, they're, they're participating in the war of ideas, the war of memes, but they're doing it in kind of a, 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 a marketplace of ideas, if their ideas suck, they're not going to make it very far in the war. Mm-hmm. As you move down in, in this kind of two dimensional space, right, left and center now, have a different kind of attitude. They're much more tribal. They're much more cultish. They 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 try to punish people whose ideas are different, and they actually try to they try to actually uh, uh, hijack the whole marketplace of ideas so that their ideas don't have to compete and they can win by coercion. Um, and so, to me, there's a there's an element of the left on the lower left right now that is telling a story, and I don't think it's um and I don't think they think they can win in the marketplace of ideas with that story. So instead, what they're doing is they're using coercion to say no one can disagree with our ideas. End of story.
2: Yeah yeah and then they want to censor books and then they want to like change i mean it just it becomes a thing where where what started as liberalism has become highly illiberal
3: because just, if you can't persuade then you coerce. Right. if you can't win the boxing match then you yeah.
0: cheat you know at the, at the to win there's a good quote that you can't reason anybody out of a position they didn't reason themselves into yes and if you look at a lot of the stories being told by the lower left as you described them tam and other political parties these stories aren't designed to persuade. Like No one is telling these stories expecting you know, people on the other side of the aisle to change their mind at, you know, at first blush. And so a lot of that comes down to a lack of faith that anybody's going to be able to change their mind. But if you look at some of the most powerful stories told throughout history, if you look at the stories told by religion, every religion has a great story. Every religion that's lasted anyway. And you can almost look at it like survival of the fittest. The religions that last and spread are the ones that have the best stories and the other ones die out. Yeah. And the best stories always have a very strong incentive for you to go out and spread the word, for you to convince other people and for other people to convert. And they have very strong punishments for you know, current believers to stop believing. And so I think it's possible to change somebody's mind. It's possible to spread a story. And maybe if you want to do that, you should take a page from the religious playbooks. Yeah, speaking
1: of curation and filtering, it's interesting to think of this from the creator side these days. So like before I tweet something, I have to put my hat on, which which makes me think, okay, what are all the ways this could possibly be misunderstood? I
2: mean it just becomes <laughs> it feels like the nastiest part of 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 those stereotypical high school mobs. Where it's like, Ew, you, no, boo, yeah, we're not gonna be your fr-. I mean, it's just it's that.
3: <laughs> no, and also you can see it where it's like you can have um uh it's like it's very binary where it's either, you know, I, I'll write something that's a little controversial and, and if the first few commenters are positive about it. And then the whole thing kind of becomes positive because the cool kids yeah. are now into the tweet. So you see a few negative, but they're being kind of like deferential and other uh, other times a couple big, you know, ringleaders come in, and they start being negative, And now the positive people are like checking out or being very deferential. And suddenly yeah. all these bullies, you know, kind of coalesce and never it's it's this crazy middle school kind of mobbish type thing. But you know, the truth is, I, I happen to—I mean, so to, I think that is—that's this is basically like a negative force in most ways. I find it to be somewhat useful in some ways because think about when you're—you know—when they're. Um, if you're if you're testing like a bungee, uh, that's you know for for a bungee jumper, you know you're gonna put it through a stress test, right? And you're not, you know what's the worst thing that can happen here, you know? Or you know it's a weird example, <laughs> yeah, but like yeah. a car. I think of all the car parts, they're gonna put it through stress tests, crash tests, right? So for me, when I throw an idea on Twitter, I'm like well, I'm putting it through the crash test. I'm gonna put it through the stress test. Let's see people who try to hate this and see how well they do. <laughs> and in some ways, it's a decent way to test ideas.
0: I remember being on a clubhouse call with you, Tim, a few months back. And Clubhouse was like blowing up. And they had uh, Elon Musk coming on for an interview. And it was this like humongous event. Like the Clubhouse rooms could only hold like 5,000 people. And his room filled up like the first minute. And there's like 10 or 11 spillover rooms with like 5,000 people each trying to listen to this. And I think you were on a stage in a room. And I was there. And Julian was there. And we're just sitting there listening to this interview. And then the interview is over. And, like, none of us want to leave. We all just want to talk about what just got said because Elon Musk is this amazing person. And, like, you had a lot of good things to say as well. And I noticed that, like, you know, on stage, it was mostly kind of like tech nerds, you know, like people who were, like, have good ideas and stuff, but they're not storytellers. And then you would say something, Tim, and, like, you would weave this, like, extremely imaginative story and use, like, all these crazy analogies and inject, like, these cool creatures and stuff into your descriptions of things. And it was, like, so markedly different from how everybody else was uh delivering their stories
3: well i'm glad you feel that i appreciate it but but one of the things that i also like that to keep in mind is that it's like it's my job and and jason's too it's 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 our job and and actually julian's too Um, we for a living spend hours and hours thinking about how to frame ideas Um, and we get reps and reps and reps with it and i think um it's you know you know, so, you know, some people are natural storytellers, but a lot of people, it, a lot of times, it's something to actually practice. It's something to work on um, in different ways because it's something, it's actually a skill that you can get better at. And um, if I'm talking about Elon, like I've written so much about that, I've gone through so many hours of thinking about what I think about Elon and the best way to say it. And then I've gotten all this feedback on it. So it, it's, it's, it's something that, if, you know, people can find ways to test
0: you know, their own ideas. When you spend that much time with, with a person and you, you tell their story so well, like, are you still, do you keep in touch? You know, does that bond you together with someone like Elon, or is it kind of like you learned a story, you perfected how to tell it. And now that's it. Um, I am in touch with him. Um, uh, I think that he thinks that I, um,
3: I, I have a good sense of like what he's doing and why. And, and I think we share in in a weird way, like a sense of humor, um, which is why I think he, he, he like originally found the blog. Um, and so, um, The truth is, like, uh, yeah, I'm not really, um, uh, I'm not talking too much to him about like the stuff that I'm writing about because I'm sure he's sick of it. But you know, I don't know.
2: (laughs) Here's an interesting uh, question that I have when I think of storytelling. I mean, Tim, when I hear you speak and obviously the the profoundly uh, engaging way in which you explain ideas, I mean, I I think of, of, of teacher archetype. You know, it's it's almost like You have an intuitive sense for other people's inner life. So you have a very, very very highly developed theory of mind. And therefore, when you are explaining something, almost like in real time, you also are able to almost unconsciously assess how something is landing. And so you're kind of like refining and molding as you speak it and finding the analogies and the metaphors because you can almost mind read the receiver's mind. And I think that's that comes from like high compassion, high intuition that pro- powerful teachers have. is Am I accurate? It, it also just comes from
3: like the concept um, that I, I don't think we're all that different. Mm-hmm. If you could divide a person into three parts, there's the stuff that they share with all humans, the universal. There's the stuff that they share with some humans. So you're you know, you have, you know, you've common with, you know, these people, but then yeah. these people don't get it. And then there's stuff that only you really understand about your nature yeah. and your nurture and stuff that, you know, is totally unique. And I think it's important to remember all three, you know, that, that, but the, to me it's the third one and the first one that build empathy. When you remember there's a, there's stuff about this person I'll never know, but yeah. also there's stuff about this person that I'm, that, that deep down in when they're, the consciousness behind their eyes is going through a lot of the same shit I go through. Correct. So, um, I, th- I think just, um, uh, One of the things I realized a long time ago, I think is just that, man, like um, if I'm going through something, if I'm insecure about something, if I'm confused about something, if I um, am you know, ashamed of something or proud of something, probably this is a common experience.
2: Right. Are you guys familiar with Aeon Magazine? Yeah, I
0: saw you tweeting the other day about how much you love their articles. So I checked out a few and they're actually very well
2: written. Oh my goodness, I I love them. Yeah, so they had this article called On the Same Wavelength and The idea was about the human need for something called emotional synchrony. And they use the example of like when a two-year-old first starts pointing at things in the world, right? When a two-year-old begins to point at things, he's not pointing at things so as to let himself know what he's looking at. He's pointing at things to check in with like his parent, you know, to see if they're both looking at the same thing. So it's an establishment of like, are we both having this experience? Are we both seeing this? Like, it's the two-year-old's way of saying, you feel me? (laughs) Like, you feel me, right? Am I not hallucinating here? And so that desire for synchrony or almost like intersubjectivity, right, is to establish that we're both seeing, we're both on the same page, we're both on the same wavelength. We need that kind of synchrony, right? People feel it in their family, maybe, or they feel it in their tribe, or they feel it among their buddies. You know, it's what makes us break into groups. But I think powerful communicators, Tim, are people that seem to be able to make almost anyone experience emotional synchrony with them. That's right. And good actors do that, too. Like, think of Robin Williams. Like a, like a Carl Sagan,
3: like right? It's like Carl Sagan's like the Michael Jordan Correct. of it. You know, <laughs> certain people
2: are just... And, and and Ronald Reagan and certain, Correct. you know. And Robin Williams Certain Robin yeah. Williams is the yes. actor. I mean, I just see his face and I'm like, I'm with him. Like I'm like emotionally I feel him. Like I I feel him. I know this person. I know his inner life. And and you know, for for me, I, I only truly feel like I've connected with someone where I truly feel like words have achieved their intention, which is you know what I mean. See what I mean? Because often words don't do justice. They're like, ah, you don't get it, or you don't, you don't get me, or like. Mr.
3: Can't. Mr. Rogers is one of,
0: is like uh, for kids. He's like that was his thing. Is he was so That's good right. at it That's for kids. Right. People need to feel heard. If yeah. Somebody tells you something, like they're not sure that you heard them, and if you argue back, for example, without like repeating back to them exactly 100%. what they said. Ideally in even better language like they don't feel like they're on the same page as you They don't feel synchronized with you and everything you say after that means literally nothing because they feel like you don't even hear what they say
1: It's kind of like this idea of steel manning from a from an argumentative standpoint where when someone presents you with their argument You repeat it back to them in the most charitable and authentic of ways so they know that you know Exactly what they're trying to communicate,
3: right? Well, because, because the, the, the assumption often, especially with sensitive arguments like politics or religion or whatever, is the assumption is that there's a brick wall. Mm-hmm. And that is the opposite of, of, of syncretic, right. synchronous exactly. emotional syncretic, correct. It, and so uh, it, it actually, that fosters dehumanization and it fosters, you know. 100%. And so when you do the steel manning, it's this incredible moment when you say, hey, there's not a brick wall here at all. It's coming it's hitting me I'm, I'm with you there's a line now between us suddenly you're gonna find a more open person on the oh, other God. side it's amazing how quickly it happens
0: Jason I know that um, like you're on YouTube a lot and like your, your sort of persona on YouTube is a part of uh, what inspired Julian to invite you on the show because uh, you're very you're very excited about what you're saying yeah, like you don't ever say anything in a lukewarm way like you seem like almost like you're drunk on what it is that you're saying and it's hypnotic to see someone like you who's so confident about what you're saying is it makes me feel more confident right
1: well part part of the, the, the larger story here, the reason why you're both on in a sense is as a kid, I was a famous Hollywood talk show host, except for it was more like infamous and, and no one fucking knows about it. And so the story was I'm from Canada, I come to the US, and I shoot this cute little pilot about me and a buddy talking about like Marvel films. And we hand it to the largest film news site, and they say, Let's just put a budget behind this and let's let's get a show going. So I'm now living in Hollywood uh, it's like my first couple weeks in the U S and i find myself a month later sitting across from Morgan Spurlock, the guy behind the super size me documentary, the filmmaker. And I'm interviewing him for this talk show that I just materialized at a thin air. We have this huge set that was built. It, it felt like I had landed and made it on day one. Like I just came to university and we record the episode and it, it, it went, it was fire. It went really well. We put it on the website people fucking hated it and the comments were like these two referring to myself and my co-host are charisma vacuums like (laughs) it it hurt that hurt but it was also so clever i'm like all right props but it was like (laughs) it was so we were so uncharismatic that we were sucking it out from everyone who was on the show oh (laughs) and and it, it was the only time in my life that I've experienced depression, which I did not know I was able to experience, mm. was immediately subsequent to that. I'm like, fuck this, push the show aside. And it's going to this deep slump. Cause I'm like, my face is all over Hollywood. All of the reporters, they all know who I am. They saw the show. I'm this joke. I've only ever wanted to be a filmmaker. That was my primary thing. Coding and writing was a secondary thing. Then um, around that time, I come across Jason's YouTube videos uh-huh. and when I saw these videos it became clear to me the criterion I was missing as a host mm. like, and it, so, so I was able to basically put the two videos side by side and say okay Julian on this show was a fucking robot I was basically just spouting analysis mm. but the analysis was not wrapped in story and mm. there was no self-awareness about the delivery, vocal tone, mm. cadence, mm. energy. And so I see Jason, and he's basically blowing his own fucking mind with his words <laughs> in real time. <laughs> it's so infective, <laughs> and I'm like, this is what I needed to do. And so I start reverse engineering. I'm like, he's charming. Why is he charming? Well, it's ex- there's a spark in his eyes. Why? Because he's only talking about things that he himself is enthusiastic about. The vocal delivery, the cadence. He's basically a spoken word poet. Um, and then he's playing on hard mode because he has to have this visual on screen presence.
2: Well, the first thing, thank you for those immensely kind remarks, Julian. But it, it's interesting because uh, I, I feel watching you describe how you felt watching those videos, you yourself were just incarnating those very same qualities. You were exciting and your delivery had the cadence of a great story and the way you told the story, you had all the exuberance of, of, of a compelling storyteller. Like, so, so just so you know, I mean, I guess the, the, the secret really is in the mirroring. Um, right. And, and I, when I say mirroring in the sense that like, typically when I'm recording something, it's in response to something.
0: So mm. when people say
2: like, from where do you summon inspiration or how do you avoid, you know, writer's block or or recording on the camera block. And I'm like, well, because I don't go out there with the intention of like, oh, let's turn on the recording and be excited about something. I'm more like have to somehow engender the conditions for something to happen that blows my mind. And then my recording is like the afterglow or like like the integration, to use a psychedelic analogy. So it's like I go and like blow my own mind. I subject myself to some experience. And then I, I simply am, 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 am sort of digesting what has transpired in the storytelling. And, and that used to happen. We used to all get together on Friday nights and have these salons in my house. And we would start to like experiment with like smoking pot and this and that. And rather than like going to parties, it was like these philosophical salons. And we'd like get stoned and then we'd start like philosophizing like Carl Sagan about the meaning of the universe. And then we would start recording. So what did you learn today? Mm-hmm. But by the time we were asking each other, what did you learn today? What was interesting about the discussion, we were like, it was almost like post-coital. <laughs> like we just had idea sex. And now right. we're like super relaxed. And then, of course, when you're relaxed, you're more confident. But you're very enthusiastic about what just happened. And right. I think that was like, that's where the training yeah. happened. You know, the muscle memory. It wasn't from like, you know, watching Neil deGrasse Tyson or studying how other people speak. It was just like practicing practicing, enthralling myself somehow. And then later just telling you what happened.
3: You kind of remind me of like, it's it's, a, it's the kind of a video science video version of a songwriter that writes a like a sad song right when they're 100%. feeling unbelievably sad after a breakup and it's like there's you can tell you know when you can just feel the real emotion when it's real and um, and so it's like it's like you're trying to I feel like you, you you try to get to like the intersection of um because authenticity is good but sometimes authenticity is also boring, like you know, most of our authentic selves are not doing much most of the time. So it's a combo of like, it's like the best moments of authenticity. And so you're like, you know, it's, 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 it's a really like a cool way to think about it. Um, wow,
2: Tim, that, that's, that's amazing to hear you say that because I feel like you totally understood exactly what it is, man. And, and that's why I often tell people like, yeah, storyteller, sure, whatever. But really, I prefer going with artist. Because I can take a more poetic license and I can speak both with empirical truth, but also like poetic or like mythopoetic truth. And that Mm -hmm. might be an interesting uh, transition here that I also want to talk about. It's like when you're telling a story, right, the question of true and false is a big one. And this is something that's very interesting, you know, when I think of a Venn diagram between, like, empirical reality or what you might call poetic reality. So, Alan de Botton, the British philosopher, he says, "...a journalist may be more accurate in describing the details of an event than a poet, but a poet may nevertheless reveal truth of a deeper sort, beyond the literal grid." Right. right. Or, or when Ursula Le Guin says, science describes accurately from the outside and poetry describes, describes accurately from the inside. Science explicates, but poetry implicates. And so that's I mean, that, this is very interesting to me because I think it also gets to the issue of like post-truth today. You know, or like what is a mythology? Like a myth is false from the outside, but true from the inside right it's true and that it can be archetypally true right it has elements of it that are mythopoetically true that are subjectively true even if they're not objectively true you know when people talk about psychedelics it's the same thing well what happens when you take a psychedelics well the d- default mode network in the brain gets temporarily dissolved the autobiographical mind cast gets cast away different parts of the brain talk to each other and what you might call the ego dies okay that's objectively what the fmri scanner shows mm-hmm right? That's from the outside. But what's what's, what's the true from the inside? Well, the person might say, well, I merged with the cosmos. I realized what I'm here to do. I spoke to my dead father. And all of that is true also, but it's true in a different way. Like church and state can be true in different ways. And if we were able to delineate those things, then we would be able to judge a storyteller from the quality of his storytelling without literalizing him. You know, you could almost argue that like, you know, Trump is an effective mythopoetic storyteller and perhaps the problem with his followers is that they literalized him and the problem with Trump's moral compass is that he knew they were literalizing what was essentially mythopoetic storytelling, which is what all cult cult leaders are doing, you know, because the problem is when you claim that a mythopoetic story or a subjective story or a poetic story is scripture, then you have corruption then you have the bleed through effect. right? And so that's why I prefer calling myself an artist, even when I talk about scientific ideas, because I'm always emotionally responding to those implications in a poetic way. And so it's like, try to be clear about what's what when you're when you're telling a story, I think is another part of storytelling.
0: Yeah, I think the frustrating thing about language is that what you're trying to do is you're trying to take this feeling, this idea, like the sensation that you have inside your mind, and you're trying to transfer that into the minds of your listeners or your viewers or your readers. But you can't just teleport the feeling into their mind. Like you have to like squish it down into like a string of words and then give them like those words and then you have to hope that those words when they hit like expand into the same shape of the idea as it exists in your mind. And like that's really hard to do, to find the right words to do that. And I think that it's super smart Jason for you to be deliberate and say like I'm going to approach this as an artist because I want people to engage I want them to, like, when they watch my videos, not, you know, get all nitpicky and scientific on me. I want them to realize that I'm communicating a subjective experience. You know, when you make a video about psychedelics, people in the comments aren't on there talking about the neural pathways. They're talking about what it felt like for them to have a similar experience as you did, Jason, because when you communicate as an artist, you're sort of cluing them in as to how they should engage with you, on what level they should engage with you. And other people do this too. Like, Tim mentioned uh, Paul Graham, who writes wonderful essays on his blog. And, like, most people, when they write an essay, they're just like, thesis statement, and then like a bunch of points that defend it. And when you present your writing that way, you're kind of telling people to argue with you. You're telling people to find flaws or holes in your argument. Like it's, if that's what you want, that's fine. But if that's not what you want, like you can do what Paul Graham does and he just tells stories. He's not like, here's an insight and here's why it's true. He's like, I was reading a book the other day and I noticed this and then I saw that and then this happened. And like at the end, like you get this insight, but you get it through the lens of a story of Paul's experiences. And the way that you engage with it is by comparing it to your own story and your own experiences. And like the fact that, you know, both him and you, Jason, and sure, like Tim and Julian, you also have your own deliberate like, ways of communicating uh, sort of helps you, I think, transfer the ideas out of your head into your readers' minds and the way that you want it to land.
1: Right. I try my best to wrap facts in stories. So it actually is reflected in how I write. So my very first draft is about finding novelty. Uh, Like, what's contrarian? What's worth reading? What's shocking? What's counterintuitive? What's counter-narrative? But the second draft, it's not about finding novel gems. Now it's about how do I make those gems pop off the page? How do I make them resonate? And that's when I start wrapping, I story wrap all of these factoids, all of these ideas in analogies and metaphors and examples and illustrations. And and that's part of what makes your, your writing so... Um, so sticky and so so compelling, Tim, is while they're very long and there's a lot of facts, they're held together by the momentum of narrative glue.
3: Yeah. Well, first, also, I'll say that some of your Twitter threads on this are great. Like, I've really um, find myself like thinking about them and inspired by them and just talking about stuff like dopamine hits, you know, per sentence or per, per paragraph and the high ratio and density of that. It's really, really like well said. Um, and, um, I think maybe a little bit like Jason, I, I try to use my own, like, um, like the consumer in me, the, the person that is entertained or not entertained by stuff is interested or not, that's curious or not, I try to use that as a compass, um, which is, you know, it's kind of the easiest way to do it. If if I'm kind of being like an artiste um, and I'm being a great writer, you know, there's great writers, of course. Right. There's lots of them. I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm a guy who writes like I talk. Right. Which is a different, totally different thing. We call them both writers totally different crafts in a lot of ways like okay occasionally i'll think i'll be like oh that was a really like great little sentence i wrote you know once in a while i'll be like yeah i just like I, I like wrote that well but that's to me like a icing on the cake if it happens to happen it's not what's important While another you know another writer it's actually you're reading something beautiful almost poetic as you're reading um whether it's fiction or nonfiction. so uh, that person um has has a different game they're playing for, for someone like me it's actually it's natural i think to to kind of do with the kind of thing i'm saying which is you know follow my uh, use myself as a compass because i'm trying to just really be me um what i'm being is i'm not not, i'm being the me that is at a dinner with five good friends and they ask about something that i've been you know and i happen to have just been reading about it and learning about it and i'm super excited about it and that person that's about to like go on like a six minute monologue but they're probably probably one where they're actually happy to listen because it's i have some good stuff uh, th- th- to say that's, I try to like b- basically bring that person Same. to Same. a blog. And I think some writers are, are don't want to do, they don't want to show people that, that close of an intimate version of the, per- the person that they show at a dinner with friends does not, you know, the public doesn't get to see that person. I'm kind of just like, I'm down. I'm like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I got nothing to hide here. I'm not, I'm not a mysterious artiste. I'm very much a real, a real human out on the page. So, and, and I also do the, a similar thing to kind of what, what you're saying, Julian, which is I, I will, th- there's a few things. There's what are my good points here? What are, what's, what do I actually uh, think about this? You know, and I will do kind of some outlining like that. Um, and then once I start writing, and it's funny because while outlining, it's actually really hard to come up with the story. It's really hard to come up with the jokes and the really kind of like, what's the good metaphor? It, it, you can do it, but like there's a, le- that's a real kind of like left brain type. Uh, it's, you know, there's, there's a very, you know, perfectionist kind of um, math-focused kind of person in in the outline world uh, and the outline phase. And that person is great. That part of my brain is great at doing that thing, structuring, but it's not very creative. so I've I've learned actually um, to stop, my, my, my perfectionist personality wants to do the entire outline perfectly first, and then only when I know exactly what I'm doing, go and start writing. It doesn't really, especially for a book or something long it's much I would think, a wiser process to do. You can't all, you have to do some outlining. So I'll do some, um, and then I'll start writing. And it's amazing when you start typing, all of these storytelling stuff, this stuff comes out because now the part of me that would be doing a talk, you know, with the adrenaline on stage or talking in front of five friends at dinner, that part suddenly is yeah. awakened. And, um, And so all of these other things, you know, kind of this may be this, uh, this, um, That's flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ideally, you're in a really good flow there. And, um, and that's when you're getting to the more poetic parts. You're getting to the more subjective experience parts. Um, and, um, and, and, and then, and then you can, then, you know, as I'm writing, I realize some things need to be changed in the outline now because all these creative ideas have actually, wait, the structure should be this instead. So then I'll go back to the outline. So I go back and forth. Um, And to me, that that helps kind of uh, keep the important ideas in there and structured, you can't just be telling a fun story or people won't remember the key ideas, but then also have the part that makes it kind of human and entertaining.
1: You know what that makes me realize is that plotting, which is basically how a story chronologically unfolds on the page, is the art of strategically withholding information. Mm. And so, you know, if you ask yourself, what keeps a story going, it's repeatedly asking questions that you don't immediately answer. And when you have that, that narrative hook, like at the end of a great TV show, and you pair that hook with another rule, which is called the peak end rule, which I'm sure you guys have heard of is this idea that the climax and the end. So the peak and the end of your story are actually what determine how much people like the story, meaning it's not the average of every moment altogether. So if you have like a bad intro and like a weak middle, but your climax is amazing and your ending satisfyingly justifies why this story was worth listening to, that's all you need to have something that people love. And that, by the way, actually explains why a lot of seemingly boring artsy indie films uh, are, are interpreted so well or appreciated so much. It's because they had one moment of artistic bliss and the ending was profound. Well, it's it's interesting because it's like
3: I agree. I, if you actually look at my posts, especially the longer ones, um, they're full of cliffhangers. They you start with you know I use a lot of fiction devices because you know there's no reason that only fiction writers are allowed you know should be allowed to use them. Like um, if you look, there'll be a lot of cliffhangers, and I will you know I t- I, I will I withhold kind of. Um, You know the 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 core point until i it's i'm ready so i might have started back at the big bang and we're going to build all the way up to today and we're going to go through all the history of technology and talk about the history of knowledge and language until we finally get to where now with all that background now it makes sense but the mean in the meantime i'll set it up at the beginning is like this is going to be worth waiting for and the thing is Without the contrarian ideas or the the new information or the really well framed you know things, I know people are going to say, "Wow, that's interesting." I don't have the confidence as a writer to do cliffhangers. I'm not going to do cliffhangers. I'm going to feel really self-loathing if I'm not if I'm doing cliffhangers and I know it's not that good. You, you know, if I'm going to do a cliffhanger, I I better have the goods. And so the goods are really important because without them, I I won't be doing all of the fun devices. Once once I know I have the goods, now I say. Just follow me, everyone. Don't worry. I promise you this is going to be good. And once you're in that mode, you can do some really good and suspenseful writing uh, because you know you have something
0: good to show them. And you're also good at, I think, taking larger-than-life characters or really like amazing ideas, Tim, and then like imbuing them with a sense of wonder. Like I think if most people wanted to write about Elon Musk, you have a whole series on Elon Musk. If most people wanted to describe Elon Musk to a friend, they would say, like, he's super duper dedicated or he's like really, really smart. Like they would just use words like that to sort of describe like what makes this person amazing. and Like that's kind of effective, but like there's better ways to do it, right? You can can explain what makes somebody amazing by comparing them to something else that everybody already agrees is amazing. Or you can uh, tell a story that kind of like reveals how amazing somebody is. Like Cal Fussman, one of my favorite storytellers, he's also a master interviewer, has this great story about this guy that he was afraid to interview. And Cal Fussman has interviewed everybody. He interviewed world leaders like Jimmy Carter and Mikhail Gorbachev. He's interviewed sports stars like Pele and Muhammad Ali. Like He's interviewed everybody, but there's only one person he was ever afraid to interview, and that was William F. Buckley. And uh, in order to sort of illustrate like, why William F. Buckley was so frightening, instead of just saying, oh, this guy was scary and intimidating, He told like a good story so that like you not only learn who William F. Buckley is, but you get to see like, okay, this is why this guy is pretty scary. Yeah. So William F. Buckley uh, was this conservative talk show host in the 60s and he just had like an amazing intellect. He was a brilliant guy. He had a huge vocabulary and he was absolutely ruthless. You know, he had like that quick wit that only a talk show host would have. And at some point in the 60s, he challenged the politician Robert Kennedy to debate him on, on a show. And Robert Kennedy was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. Like, I'm, I'm a great debater. I'm a politician. But like, absolutely not. I'm not going to go do this. And so the next night, William F. Buckley comes out on his show. And he's addressing his audience. And he's like, well, you know, I invited Robert Kennedy to come on and debate me. He has refused. This is clearly a case of the baloney rejecting the grinder. <laughs> and like, he was just always picking people apart like that. He just had like the most clever ways to just, just tear you apart. And so Cal Fussman was afraid to interview him. Like, he didn't want to go. And like, I just, I love the fact that that story was so good at conveying what made this person scary.
1: That's right. It wasn't an analysis. It was a narrative so that the analysis
0: was implied. It was a story. It was proof. Show show me, don't tell me. Exactly. You, uh, Tim, you got to run in a couple minutes, but I- Yes, I do. Thank you. I feel like I have to remark that you've been on basically like the biggest stage in the world in terms of basically talking to people on video. You were invited to give a TED talk and you gave one and- I think it's the number one TED Talk on YouTube with almost 40 million views, which is nuts. Because it's hard to imagine speaking to a bigger audience. Like that single 15 minutes you had on stage, that's uh, like a ar- presidential address. Yeah, it's arguably bigger than like every blog post you've written <laughs> in total. It's it's very very strange. Um, I never ever want to do
3: a TED talk again, <laughs> um, and I don't say that just like self-deprecating. Like, like I really don't want to. In that, um, it's not a talk. A talk is fine. If you you vomit, you do badly, you mess something up, you're never gonna see these people again. They, they they're yeah. gone. You li- you leave. It's over. A TED Talk is what I think of it. As, is It's not a talk; it's a widely distributed short film yeah. where you have one take, and your face is the only actor, and you have that's it. One take, and you're inexperienced, and so um, it, it 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 went well enough that, uh, that 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 it was able to to totally like pop online, and I'm thrilled about that, and never want to go through it again. Especially now that that one did, that one got that many views. I'm thinking like, if that's the size of the stage that this thing might be on, like it's just too stressful. I can't.
2: It was great. I was there. Yes, you were. That's where I met you. I think. I think that was around the time where your blog was already blowing up. So I, I remember Tim had the air of a celebrity at TED uh, that, that session. So I was already looking forward to uh, to his talk. I'm glad you I'm glad it came
3: off
1: that way. Yeah, because, no, yeah. no,
2: no, for sure. I mean, it was you had some heat, let me put it that way. And people were looking forward to your talk. I remember people were excited that you were there. And, and you did great, man. Yeah, you, you did
3: awesome. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Tim,
2: cheers, brother. All right. Talk back to you all soon.
0: All right. Our guests today were Jason Silva and Tim Urban. You could find more information about each of them in the show notes for today's episode, but I highly recommend following Jason on Instagram. He's at JasonLSilva. And also checking out Tim's excellent blog, waitbutwhy.com.